Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Asset Allocation Views and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Maddie Desner, Investment Specialist, Multi-Asset Solutions, and I will be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Jeff Geller, Chief Investment Officer, Multi-Asset Solutions, and Michael Hood, Senior Investment Strategist, Multi-Asset Solutions, both within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So, Michael, you recently came off the two-day, what we call our strategy summit. And typically, before we go into these conversations, you get together with a group of your colleagues and decide what are the key issues that the team is struggling with or wrestling with. Can you give us a sense of, as you walked into the two-day summit a couple of weeks back, what were the key issues that you wanted to really kick the tires on during that session? Yeah, I think I'd identify probably three major issues that were on our minds. First is what's been happening with emerging markets. We were interested in understanding the sources of the stress that has hit EM in recent months and then think about whether, on the one hand, that might start to pass through more seriously into developed markets like the U.S., or on the other hand, if we're getting to a point where there might be some buying opportunities in EM itself. Second is the U.S. itself. We've had a significant overweight to U.S. equities for a little while now, and that's been justified by significant growth outperformance of the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. On the other hand, the stocks have outperformed a lot, too. And in our forecast, that positive growth differential in favor of the U.S. starts to narrow a little bit. So we wanted to understand a little bit more about whether that U.S. overweight is still justified or whether we need to think about spreading the risk out a little bit more broadly. And then finally is duration, thinking about bond yields. Bond yields have come up a little bit, and they're certainly less unattractive than they once were. On the other hand, we expect the Fed to continue tightening, and it's important to understand if the correlation between stocks and bonds is likely to continue to be negative or not. If so, then we would think of duration as an effective hedge against risky assets in the portfolios, including an equity overweight. If not, then we would probably need to think about moderating the overall level of risk that we're taking. Okay, so those are three really important topics for investors. Don't keep us in suspense here. How did you guys come out on all of those things? Well, I think if you look at the big, slow-moving aspects of our forecasts and our views of the world, those really haven't changed dramatically in recent months. We're still talking about the current business cycle expansion in the U.S. continuing for a while. So we see pretty limited recession risk over our forecast horizon. And we still see global growth as running at a somewhat above trend pace through at least the remainder of this year and into 2019. And we still see inflation gradually grinding higher with the Fed continuing to tighten. But both of those things happening at a fairly steady pace as opposed to significantly accelerating. And so I I think all that leaves us still somewhat comfortable with a modest pro-risk tilt in portfolios. On the other hand, the big shift that we've gone through in recent months and one that I think we continued to move toward at this summit is just a sense that the U.S. is one of the only games in town and that there are not a lot of other equity markets where we're really comfortable in taking a lot of risk. And given that the U.S. has obviously done very well with the S&P currently sitting pretty close to its all-time high, I think that causes us to moderate that risk appetite a little bit at the margin. 
we also note that cash is just much less unattractive than it used to be. For many years here, you've certainly not been paid to avoid taking risk. You've suffered. And now cash, at least in the U.S., as as short-term interest rates have risen, has become a destination. And we think that certainly some investors will continue to move in that direction, which kind of takes away some of that sort of semi-automatic bid that there's been for risk assets in recent years. So that's another thing that, again, probably causes us to moderate our risk appetite at the overall portfolio level. On the other hand, I think we're reasonably comfortable with duration here with government bonds, not necessarily as a source of fabulously attractive returns in their own right, but they're not any longer costing us a lot to hold in portfolios. And we do think at this point that that stock bond correlation is likely to remain at least somewhat negative and that duration will continue to be a fairly effective hedge within portfolios. So that leads us to a sense that at the stock bond level, we probably lean toward a slightly positive view. But at the same time, we probably like to be a little bit long duration here as well. Jeff, given that you are the CIO of the multi-asset solutions team in New York and with your co-CIO, Jimmy Elliott, in London, you essentially own the result of this two-day strategy summit and the views that are being espoused in the two days. And Michael just ran us through it. Can you give us a sense of where were the biggest sources of debate in the team? I know you like to look through multiple lenses when it comes to having those conversations over two days, whether it be a quantitative lens, more fundamental views, or even views from the underlying managers. Where would you say the biggest differentiation in some of the views mm-hmm. or dispersion in some of the views were? Well, I think probably one of the more interesting examples is on U.S. equities, where I think, as Michael articulated, I think there's been a very strong argument in case has been made when you look at you know, earnings trends, looking at how U.S. corporates, in terms of both not only what they've reported in terms of better than expected earnings, but forward guidance, looking at consumer sentiment, business confidence as well, all supporting the U.S., whereas our quant models have actually, the signals have been very, very negative while fundamentals have been steady and technicals have been steady because valuations are somewhat extended versus other developed markets, the signals have consistently been negative. So again, how do we rationalize that? And again, probably one of the more important roles that Jimmy and I play in this process is listen to the arguments that are being presented and kind of shift in terms of where the weight of evidence is. And I think given the arguments that have been made by Michael and the strategy team, we have consistently leaned toward an overweight position in U.S. equities and have actually moved further in that direction today, which is a big shift from where we were coming into this year. For anyone that has followed us in terms of our asset allocation views, really over calendar year 2017, and we began that process in the second half of 2016, was emphasizing synchronized global growth and actually coming into the year, not only will we overweight equities to a greater extent than we are today, but really with that risk spread across the U.S. and EM and Japan. So this is a a pretty dramatic shift from where we were. And I think that thinking evolved toward much more emphasizing the U.S. versus the rest of the world coming into the second quarter of this year of shifting further in that direction. I know Michael touched on duration. It's a subject that we continue to come back to. While the path of rates are clearly higher in the U.S., there are two things that you've got to look at. Is it because inflation is going to be dramatically higher than the market's expecting, or are rates moving higher coincident with U.S. growth? And I think that the view that we've taken, I think it's one that we continue to kick the tires on. And actually, this was a very active discussion that we had as a team in February when you got that bad wage inflation print 
is that inflation is moving very slowly, as Michael articulated, and that it's not so much that we're worried about inflation spinning out of control, the 10-year is going to be at four and a half a year from now, but it's really more, it's moving in this negatively correlated fashion with growth. So basically, growth in the U.S. economy is supporting the modest uptick in rates. But again, I think to the extent that we're looking at introducing more ballast in the portfolio and that duration is moving very negatively correlated around prospects for U.S. growth, if for some reason growth disappoints or trade wars end up having a dent not only on the global economy but the U.S. economy, we'll be happy having some government bonds as ballast in the portfolio. So speaking about portfolio positioning, I think we've talked a lot here about some very actionable ideas, whether it be our views relative value within equities Mm -hmm. or within fixed income and our Mm -hmm. evolving view on duration. But one of the questions that I think we often get from clients is, as you take this view and you bring it to life Mm -hmm. in portfolios, as Michael said, we're modestly pro-risk right now. What does modest mean? To you as you're actually expressing that view and transacting portfolios day to day for clients? How do you actually make those decisions? Well, again, I think for our clients that are more attuned to alpha and tracking, which is certainly representative of a big segment of our institutional market, the overall allocation to equities is coming down closer to what the client would define as a neutral position. But the big shift is most of that risk anywhere, that equity allocation anywhere between 65 and 70 percent of that equity risk is being taken in U.S. equities, whereas coming into this year would have been more like 50 to 55 percent in U.S. equities. So that's really where you're seeing the biggest shift. The other thing that we've had to think about, we haven't really touched much on credit. I think we've had a more neutral view on high yield. I mean, we're okay to the extent that we have a more sanguine view on the U.S. economy. It's not the most exciting place to be, but we think it's too early to head for the hills out of high yield. The one area that we have focused on have been triple Bs. They represent a much larger portion of the investment-grade market. And it's an area where you've seen leverage pick up dramatically with the increase in M&A activity. So it's an area where we think you could see more vulnerability in terms of downgrades, which is certainly important for our liability where clients, the natural hedge for them would be long corporates. And, you know, that's a risk that we've got to think about. So when you say focus on triple Bs, you mean trying to sidestep them? Sidestep it. And moving into other things. So one thing that we've done that's interesting, I mean, ordinarily in a liability aware portfolio for a corporate pension fund, the hedge assets would primarily be in long corporates. And what we've done is we've de-emphasized long corporates and replaced that with treasuries and bank loans, effectively barbell that as a less risky position than sitting with 50% in triple Bs. And it's interesting because I think many investors might think bank loans is actually a riskier position, but given what you've said about the leverage present in the corporate credit space, right. you but actually it's also view it pairing as- it with treasuries. I mean, yep. the treasuries as being such a big anchor now. Okay. Michael, when you think about the views that you've espoused in the Strategy Summit, I know that you kick the tires on these views every week, every month, as we get new information. So give us a sense of what new information you're looking for that would really cause you to take another look, potentially change your view. Is there one piece of data that you're watching or is it a series of data? How do you all think about the high-frequency data flow and what you're really watching for? Probably pick up on two things that Jeff said in terms of categories of things that would really catch our eye and possibly cause a more fundamental change in view. 
one of which is about the corporate sector in the U.S., which appears to be in pretty rude health at the moment, at least from a flow perspective. We've seen very good earnings. We look at an indicator called the corporate financing gap, which is essentially the relationship between CapEx spending and cash flow. And by these kinds of flow metrics, everything really looks great. On the other hand, as Jeff mentioned, corporate leverage has climbed pretty steadily during the current expansion, and it now looks pretty elevated by historical standards. And when we think about that medium-term recession risk, what's going to cause the next recession, not that we think that's imminent, but we think the most likely candidate would be some sort of retrenchment in the corporate sector in order to rebuild those balance sheets. So if we started to see some deterioration in those corporate flow metrics that suggest that things are just a little bit less healthy than we currently think, then I think that would cause a more fundamental reshaping of the views. And then the other thing would be inflation. So again, to the extent that we see inflation beginning to accelerate beyond our current forecasts, that would, on the one hand, probably be associated with more aggressive monetary tightening by the Fed, which would again threaten the sustainability of the current expansion. And at the same time, it would probably be a development that would cause that stock-bond correlation to turn positive, meaning the government bonds, the fixed income in general, would no longer be a hedge for the risky assets. And that's really the biggest threat to a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds is that big monetary policy shock. So I think if we saw either of those two developments coming down the pike, those would be things that would mm-hmm. cause a more fundamental reorientation mm-hmm. of the portfolios. Mm-hmm. Another question that people naturally ask is, we love U.S. equities, we're overweight U.S. equities, we have company. I mean, isn't that a consensus view and one that's gotten to be much more popular this year? One area that we obviously come back to in thinking about is U.S., where we are very overweight right now, and contrast that with EM, where we've taken down risk materially from where we were earlier in the year. One of the more interesting insights, and again, this is somewhat linked to what the output of our long-term capital market assumptions, is that valuation might be somewhat elevated, but valuation is a much better predictor of long-term returns as opposed to what's going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months. So if you think that earnings are going to come through that support where valuations are today, the U.S. is still a comfortable place for taking risk. And a lot of the view on EM, it isn't so much that we're taking as negative a view on emerging markets as we did in 2015. The discussion that we're having as we're moving further along in the cycle is really where are you most rewarded for taking risk right now? And is EM the place that we want to put our stake in the ground in terms of taking risk? And independent of what's going on with potential trade frictions or trade war and then the possibility of a negative outcome accelerating between the U.S. and China, is that unless you make some heroic assumptions about the dollar weakening, which would ease financial conditions, or that earnings, which have been actually leaning toward a downtrend versus the U.S. on an uptrend, it's very hard to build a case that you're going to see a runaway to the upside in EM. I mean, not that it's a volatile asset class and it's going to move with certainly some of the trade rhetoric, but it's very hard to build the case that that's an area where you want to be massively overweight. And I know we get more questions about that, especially because it's an asset class that's underperformed so much this year. Michael, when you think about the views that you have today and going into the Strategy Summit, bringing in speakers, there are so many different views that you could bring to the table, lots of different points of view that you could call on. What is the process by which you decide on the speakers that come, the views that you and the team hear? How do you make those decisions? Are you purposely looking for people who disagree with you? What is the process that you follow? 
Well, a watchword for our whole investment process and approach is to try to take advantage of different streams of information. So if you think about, for example, the views that come out of my group, the qualitative views, which we then combine with the quantitative views coming out of the various models that we're running, and we feel like combining those different perspectives gives us a more robust process. Yes, when we're looking to hear other speakers from outside our group at an event like the Strategy Summit, really what we're trying to do is to bring more kinds of information into the process. That may be somebody who has a different view about something that we are always thinking about, or it may be somebody who's an expert in an area that we rarely think about. It's the idea of trying to complement what we're generating internally with new sources of information Mm -hmm. from elsewhere. And that's an interesting point that Michael is raising. I think one thing that I've always emphasized with clients is that if our process was a pure qualitative process, our numbers wouldn't be as good. I think if it was a pure quantitative process, the numbers wouldn't be as good. And if we had a single guru that came down from the mountain, the numbers would not be as good. So it's not only the different insights that we bring in, but the different angles that we look at it from. And it's important that we bring people from outside of our group and very often from outside the organization to challenge us and to keep us intellectually honest. And it doesn't just begin and end with the strategy summit. We continue, we formally re-underwrite those views on a monthly basis and then on a weekly basis dive into specific topics. So as the narrative is changing, as new data points are coming out, as markets are moving, we're not dogmatic in those views. They are continually refreshed. Thank you for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on the J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes or on our website. Recorded on September 24, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. 
This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.